0: Howdy how, this is Aswi, and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Yo, what is up, guys? We are back with another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I know you guys miss my intros. They're always amazing. With me, I got my boy AC. What's good? And we have to talk about the playoffs, guys. So round two has been incredible. And we're going to talk about three teams. We're going to talk about the Bucks and the Celtics, as well as the Warriors and the Grizzlies. And we're going to also briefly talk about the Philadelphia 76ers, who us we is not so happy about, and the Miami Heat. AC, what are your initial thoughts so far based around everything we've seen?
1: Well, I love how the three teams you mentioned were actually six teams. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's that's true, that's true.
1: (laughs) No, but it's, well, I mean, let's start with that Sixers series. We just finished watching game two between the Sixers and the Heat. I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. I'm an honest man. You guys can come to me to hear the truth. And the truth is, I literally fell asleep in this game. (laughs) and it was it just felt to me that without Embiid and with Harden in this sad condition that he's in right now where he frankly looks washed up at age 33 I just don't even give them like a chance to win the game BAM is just too much for any of the other weak centers they have and I I just I just don't see it so you know barring Embiid coming back and then winning four out of five games it, it feels like this series is already over that's sort of my initial take on it.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm leaning more towards what you're saying here, AC. I, I think that, you know, Embiid is such an important part of the Sixers team. Not having Embiid shows the biggest problems with the Sixers team, right? They run a lot of action through their center because Embiid is one of the greatest, you know, big men of all time, honestly, with how he's able to play the game. So not having him is, is a huge flaw in, in the way the Sixers operate their offense it looks a lot of Harden of old where you would just isolate the whole possession and against a team like Miami who has incredible perimeter defenders, you know, you're not going to get those, those opportunities to just get to the basket, you know, getting to the basket's a luxury against this Miami heat team. I mean, we can see it with Tyrese maxi. He's struggling in this series. And quite frankly, Tobias Harris has really been the most consistent player for them. And that's saying something, you know, he's like the third, fourth, fifth option on this team. Right. So it's it's really tough to to see the Sixers really crumble without Embiid here, and Harden looks like a shell of himself.
1: I have a couple of reactions to what you said there. Tobias has been not just the most consistent player in this series; he's been their most consistent player in the entire playoffs, and he's been one of those guys who historically has not performed in the playoffs. So it's nice to see him step up. And you would think if they could get even like the median expected output from the rest of those players on the team, that they would have a fighting chance in some of these games, but they're just not getting it at all, unfortunately. And that brings me to James Harden. You said that without MB he's kind of looking like the Harden of old. I actually would say that he just looks like old Harden because <laughs> this, this guy right now, in game one, for instance, I thought he was very passive when they clearly needed him to be that Harden of old where he took lots of possessions on and, and really tried to create and, and was kind of would be a high usage player. He was a little bit passive, and I think part of the problem is he doesn't seem to have his first step anymore. He can't get by guys, right? And this is a trend, you know, continues from the regular season. He's not a good finisher around the rim. He was the third worst finisher at the rim in the entire NBA this season. That is not the James Harden that I remember, right? For all the talk about James Harden's his playoff struggles, and, you know, his flopping and everything else, the one thing that James Harden could always do is you could threaten him with a step back, but he could get by you, and then if he got near the rim, he would finish, or you get an and-one, or get a foul. He's not doing any of those things right now, and you have to wonder now. Like the Sixers gave you know a lot to get this guy. It seems like Daryl Morey, we all know, is Harden's boy, and Daryl Morey literally will come to tears about about James Harden. That's how much he loves this guy. He has a really difficult decision this off season of whether to extend a guy who looks like he's. Maybe already
0: past his prime. No, that's a really good point you made, AC. And again, Harden is a guy for years who's been known as a playoff choker. So I guess also shaking that mantle of having to, you know, really be the guy for his team right now. It's hard to do that, especially when in the first round he was really comfortable with being playing second fiddle to Embiid, and you know to go back into this role of being a, a primary option. You know, we see how much he's struggling with it because, like you said, he's having difficulty, you know, getting past guys, being able to finish at the basket. And again, maybe it's it's the personnel that the Heat have which make it difficult because they do have a lot of really good perimeter defenders. But a guy of James Harden's caliber, and like you said, they gave a lot to get him. So he has to be performing at an all-time great level in order for the Sixers to really, you know, go all the way. And not having him beat is, yes, I can understand it as an excuse, but at least be able to take one game. So you go back home, it's 1-1. It's a huge blow to them.
1: They lost today's game. They were basically always at least 10 points away, it felt like, the entire game. It just felt like they can't score enough points. And I, I, I think you're absolutely right to point out that Miami is a very versatile de- defensive team. They have so many switchable guys, from Tucker, to Bam, who's, you know, maybe after Anthony Davis, the best switching big man in the NBA. who's just, just great feet. Obviously, Jimmy Butler's incredible. Lowry hasn't even played in this series. And he's another guy you could throw in there who's, you know, sort of a rugged bulldog defender. I just don't think they can score enough. I think they would have struggled to score even with Embiid. But obviously, Embiid had the scoring title this season. And, and to be fair to the Sixers, every team looks bad without their best player. Right, like you, you build your team assuming that guy is going to be there. So it's fair to say that, you know, we don't expect them to do anything much without Embiid. But what I what I wanted to see is like maybe they steal a game, make it competitive. Maybe Harden has you know throwback performance. To oh wait a minute, he had never had any good playoff performances.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was waiting for that for the (laughs) punchline.
1: No, but I mean, you know, you said he had to play at an all time level. How about just an all star level, right? right? He's not right. doing that right now. And if, if he could just do that, then there's a world in which maybe you know, Maxi gets hot. Maybe one of these other shooters hits some shots. One of the things that's killing them is they just cannot buy a three pointer. I mean, they are in a situation here where Matisse Tybalt has gone the way of Tony Allen. I mean, coming into this game, he was shooting 25% from three in the playoffs. And, you know, teams are just leaving him open. Danny Green has been pretty streaky. They're they're just not getting enough outside shots when Harden is getting in in the paint and and, and sort of spraying it out. It's not, those plays aren't being converted at the rate that they need to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, to go back with what you were saying about, about Embiid, right? I mean, we could see it in the Toronto series, right? A lot of the times, the ball would get dumped into Embiid and it'd force a double team nearly every time, right? Now, Bam Adebayo could definitely trouble a guy like Embiid, but it's not enough. So the double is going to have to come. So the, the way that their offense works is a lot of ball movement on the perimeter, wait for the defense to collapse, and find an open man to shoot. Now they don't have that that central figure that they can just toss the ball down low, so the offense gets really stagnant a lot of the time. And on, on top of that, not having that room to operate from the center position, it really hurts a guy like Tyrese Maxey who could make use of that kind of spacing. So we, we can see that a lot of the struggles, yes, it does fall on, on Embiid, not being there, but... Again, the other guys do need to, to step up.
1: Yeah, and I think Tyrese Maxey is showing why he's a young player, right? There are some games where he looks incredible. Other games where it feels like he's non-existent or rushing things too much. He's a very fast player. He's amazing at attacking the weak side, right? When, he, when the ball swings around to him, he's great at hitting that shot or if the defense closes hard, putting pressure on the rim and, and he can kind of explode through a gap in a way that few guys in the NBA can do. But when you take Embiid out of it, and now the defense has shifted a little bit more toward him, it's causing problems. I actually think one of the solutions could be to put the ball in his hands a little bit more, and maybe if Harden be the guy attacking the weak side, I feel like if if they tried that, which is sort of a inversal of the way they've been playing this season, then maybe Harden's lack of first step could you know it won't be as much of a problem but I, I don't really see Doc Rivers going there. In fact, I, I think Doc Rivers has had a very poor series, which brings me to my next point, and the point in which our co-host, Usui, has been hammering our text thread with whining about day in and day out. <laughs> Why the hell is DeAndre Jordan playing, on him?
0: <laughs> Honestly, that is probably the age-old question right now, and Doc Rivers has even been on record defending his decision to start... DeAndre Jordan, and it's it's baffling for for everyone, right? I mean, if you someone has to ask you that question as a coach, and you have to defend it, there's something wrong, right? Like it's not just yeah. it can't just be like us in the text threads talking about it. It's it's right. a known thing throughout the league that this guy is just washed. He can only play in one defensive scheme, which is drop. He never makes a, a second rotation. He's arguably the worst player in the NBA, and he's starting on this team right now, so it does beg the question whether dockers is in his right mind or as us, we would allude to him being Glenn rivers. Cause he doesn't deserve the title of, of doctor <laughs> that goes against Dr. J and, and doctors around the world. So,
1: Well, he ain't going to earn that nickname in Philly anytime soon. The way that this, <laughs> that this series is going, you know, we said on this pod earlier this season, Eric and I had multiple rants about Deandre Jordan. We both believed that he was the worst player in the NBA. And and you said he could play one scheme, which is drop. I would argue he could play no schemes because he actually makes no effort. I get it. He's tall, right? So like, in theory, he could do something. This man makes at most one rotation and then doesn't do anything after that at all. And yes, I suppose he can catch a lob, but the value isn't there. And and he, he clogs up the spacing as well. The only thing I'll say in defense of Doc is it's not like they have a murderous row of great options right now because right, you know, Paul yeah. Reed is sort of the popular pick, but he, he's, he's been in foul trouble in some of these games. and I, I don't think he's quite there from a polished perspective. Paul Millsap is washed up in his own right. I, I would like to see more of George Niang playing the five. Now, that will not hold up defensively, but yeah, at least yeah. the theory there is offensively you can at least space the floor out. With DeAndre, you're not getting anything defensively. Or offensively, so I just don't see any value there. They have to be creative here until Embiid comes back, and and hopefully he does come back next game. But I I think you know trying to play the same way they're not going to be the more physical team against Miami,
0: regardless. So their only chance is to try to be the more skilled team. Yeah, I mean, amen to that. I mean, Doc Rivers. Yeah, again, in fairness, he does have very limited options, but at the same time, it's like you have to you know, mix and match your lineups and try to make something work out of nothing, right? Because listen, you're up against a very talented Miami Heat team. You don't have your best player. So show us why you're considered to be a top 15 greatest coach of all time, right? I mean, he needs to at least put in some sort of effort into the schemes, change something up. Because listen, if you're going to be stuck in your ways about starting DeAndre Jordan, and you're not going to adapt and adjust, like that just goes to show that you're not taking this as seriously as you should be. Because listen, this you're, the expectation this year is that Philadelphia should win a title, right? That's 100%. The,
1: that 100%. is the
0: mindset that they were going into the season with, right? So why are you holding on to your old days with, you know, being a, the Clippers coach and having DJ back when he was doing something? You know, he's not the same player that he was. You can't play that same way in today's NBA. So you have to adapt and adjust. Show us why you're a good coach. Otherwise you get berated and all that stuff people are saying about you is true, right? So let, let's see something, Doc. Come on. Or Glenn. You know, I should be saying Glenn, not Doc.
1: <laughs> so I, I feel like we've we've talked enough about this series, which feels virtually over right now. Now I hope that MB comes back. If MB comes back for game three, I'll give, you know, the Sixers a fighting chance just because he's that dominant of a basketball player. But why don't we move on then, Anu? Let's talk about one of the most exciting series is going on with two really close games that came down to the wire. I'm talking about the Grizzlies versus the Warriors. The series is tied one, one at the time of us recording this. And it really does feel like it could, it could have been 2-0 either way. What have you seen so far?
0: You know, this is the classic case of like the, the the new versus the old school, right? Because the Warriors for a while have been, you know, this dominant team, Right, they've come into the season. People are, are have really high expectations of them. You know, Clay came back. They have Draymond. They have Steph. They have the you know the three musketeers all all parading around, and they have a really good young guy in Jordan Pool and a nice you know defensive player in, in Andrew Wiggins. Right, so it's a good good squad they're coming in with. Right, with some good young talent. Now they're up against the new school. You know, the, the, the new kids on the block. They got John ja Morant, who's one of the most exciting players in the NBA. You know, a really good young squad with uh, Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson Jr., Dylan Brooks, who we'll we'll talk about him particularly a bit later. But you know, this is this is like a a really cool matchup in terms of that kind of lore we can give, right?
1: Yeah, if I could jump in real quick, Anu, one of the best things that can happen in a playoff matchup between two teams is is what you identified that young team coming up against that older team that's trying to hold their place. That old, especially if it's an older championship team, right? Remember in the 80s we saw this with Isaiah's bad boys trying to beat the Celtics and failing and failing and overcoming. And then just as they do that you have the Chicago Bulls team that's trying to come up and they are going against the Pistons and then the yep, Pistons yep. were the the team that was holding them down for a certain time until the Bulls rose up, right? We saw this Warriors team around, you know, 2013-2014 start to really blossom. They had some really competitive playoff series against very good teams like the Spurs. And the next thing you know, they were just in the finals every year and they were breaking records and and they were unstoppable. And this Grizzlies team has such a collection of young talent. We all know about Ja. Desmond Bain quietly had a very Clay Thompson-esque season. Elite defense on one end. Shot 43% from three in the other end on 18 points per game. Shot 46% from three in the playoffs so far so he's really is sort of that mold of a player jaron jackson jr is is sort of in that draymond model now he has to work on his foul trouble that's been a big problem for him throughout his career and also he's, yep. he's a bit injury prone but you can see it like he's got all the defensive tools and then they have just all these other guys like melton clark zire williams they're like 12 deep legitimately and yeah, a lot of those sure. guys are very young
0: no it's it's super exciting right and, and you mentioned it about like jaron jackson jr in particular i mean he was the, the block leader, right, coming into this, this playoffs. So, again, like, he it, he does have this really bad problem. Him and Dylan Brooks, they're both super foul-prone. They foul really unnecessarily, and it, it hurts their chances at winning games. I mean, even if we look at the last two games, he fouled out in both games, right? And even in the, the series against the Timberwolves, he was fouling out in those games, too, right? So they need a guy like that on the defensive side of the ball, particularly – to be available and to be active. So, you know, not having him is a big blow to them, but I mean, l- listen, before we even talk about any of the other guys, let's talk about the main guy on this team. Ja Morant. I mean, AC, I'm going to go into a little bit of a tirade later, but I want to hear hear your thoughts initially right now.
1: So, Ja Morant is to me unquestionably the most exciting player in the NBA. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm talking about this guy on one possession, he might have the craziest in-traffic dunk. And in the next possession, he could switch hands and make a Michael Jordan-esque layup. And I'm not exaggerating when I use that name to describe the kind of hang time this guy has on some of his layups. But when it came to the playoffs, especially in round one against the Timberwolves, I thought that he struggled a bit. Now granted, at the end of that series, he was amazing. He closed them out. But there were times in that series where it looked like they had him figured out a bit. And and in fact, he had struggled against him even in the regular season, for whatever reason. Well, this series, though, he is absolutely obliterating the Warriors' defense. They just don't have anyone that's even close to his athletic level. And what's amazing to me about him is, he's just so poised. Like, down the stretch, how many critical floaters did he make, or... You know, taking a three at a time that that's what's be the weakness of his game. He makes these big three at the right moment, right? And then like even when the defense is is sort of collapsing in the paint against and doing that sort of Giannis wall tactic, he kind of has this weird ability to just knife right through that and get to his spot. Like I, I would be terrified of playing. It, it reminds me a little bit of it's almost like we 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 often compare him to Westbrook or to Rose, but in some ways he reminds me almost of like a more efficient Iverson and just that yeah, he's I was just thinking the so same fast. Yeah, right? He's just so fast. You're afraid to like guard him because he might just embarrass you. You saw there was a play where that actually happened to, uh, I think it was Jordan Poole in the late game, where he just kind of got turned around on, on, a, on a play that ended up being a jaw floater. That's what elite speed does in basketball.
0: Yeah. and And you mentioned elite speed, but it's also controlled speed, right? So he's very good at you know going at 100 then stopping to go to 20 and then getting to 60 stopping to 40 and then going back to 100 right he's so good at this you know change of pace so I I used to call John Morant Westbrook with a brain and I I feel like that's basically what John Morant is because one he doesn't necessarily you know stat hunt right that's not really his game but he's a guy who can easily get up to like eight, seven, eight, nine rebounds a game because of his pure athleticism and wanting to get the ball to push the ball up the court. On top of that, he's a, a elite passer. You know, if the defense keys in too hard on him, he can easily, you know, make that swing pass into the corner when he's driving on the right side or left side. You know, he's really good at you know playing in a controlled pace too, not necessarily needing to attack, but swing the ball a little bit, find the open guy. He has a guy like Desmond Bain who gets him tons of assists just by being a catch-and-shoot player. You know, when you're not too careful, John Morant will, you know, dissect the defense. I mean, here's some numbers just in this series alone. AC in these two games, and granted, they're two games, but he's averaging 41 points, nine rebounds, and nine assists, Jesus. as well as three steals. On top of that, that's like
1: LeBron against like the Orlando Magic that <laughs> For one year. Real. You know, those kind of numbers.
0: Like with that absurd athleticism, he just gets wherever he wants at any point in time and, and granted, right? Like I think that the Timberwolves had a good scheme against him. So it it didn't make it hard, but let's be honest. The warriors really have no individual player that can stay in front of John Morant. He's able to get wherever he wants at any time. And he's just so explosive. So good. So smart that he's able to like take advantage of any sort of scheme that they're employing against them. And if they decide to like trap or like do anything of that nature, Listen, John Morant's not an idiot. He's going to find the open guy. And those role players that we spoke about, they're going to punish you. You leave a Desmond Bain wide open. He's splashing that every single time. Even a guy like Jaron Jackson Jr., he's a very good three-point shooter. So they can play schemes that give John Morant space to operate. So either you pick your poison, you just you know send bodies over to him, or you let him have his way. It really is like LeBron James of old.
1: Yeah, I think... What you're saying is correct in theory, but in practice, I haven't really seen the Warriors try anything besides their base switching scheme. So we know going back basically the entirety of their run, the Warriors are one of the most switch-heavy teams in the NBA. It's really one of the reasons they're always an elite defense. The problem is this guy is just too fast for anybody they have, especially without Gary Payton II after that gruesome injury, which we'll talk about in a second, they don't have anyone who has the foot speed to stay in front of John Morant. And, and let's be honest, there's very few people who can do it, period. And, and so he, what's, what's happening is it's just too easy for him. Like, like He's kind of just rolling the ball up the court, picking his spot, you know, one pick, and going at a guy, or even just having a running head start and just blowing by a guy. He's in the paint already. I, I would like to see them. I, I think you're right, Anishan, that this team is well built enough and he's unselfish enough that if you try to trap him, he can find other ways around it. Like we saw in the in the Timberwolves series, ultimately the Grizzlies solved the the traps and the hard hedges that they were running. But it's fair to say that he also did struggle at part of that series. And I, I would argue that that team had probably worse defensive personnel overall, at least with respect to the big men. Like Towns is pretty bad, Ru- and Russell is horrible right? at defense. So they basically had a couple of sieves out there, and they were still able to contain him, at least for part of the series. What the Warriors are doing right now is they're being a little bit scheme stubborn on defense. There's actually just one play in that entire game, game two I'm talking about, where I remember them trapping Ja and he nearly turned the ball over. So I, I'm, I'm not saying that he can't beat that, but I'd like to see them give some different looks here. Like make Melton make a three, you know, make Jackson make a three. They're capable of doing it. But right now, if you're just letting this guy have a free reign, he's going he's gonna to win. He's going to beat you guys.
0: Yeah, and, and that's really true. And you mentioned something about the Warriors' schemes, and I think that sort of brings us over to Steve Kerr and how he sort of approached the series. I mean, I, I know that you, in particular, have, have told me about you know the ways in which Steve Kerr has chosen to approach the series, and I, I feel like in, in some instances, because he's had so much success over the the course of his you know coaching career that he's very complacent in, in what they're doing and maybe he thinks that his players are so great in the system that they play in that they can still overcome uh, a John Morant 40-point game. But let's be honest, these games are very close. They could have gone either way. Both games could have gone either way. Right now, we're stuck at, at 1-1. But AC, I wanted to ask you like, what your overall thoughts were about Steve Kerr and his coaching decisions.
1: Yeah, so I, mean, I, I touched on what I thought was maybe inflexible defensive strategy, but I think that also applies... To their offensive strategy, so the Warriors, to their credit, run one of the most beautiful offensive systems in NBA history, and certainly in modern NBA history. But even when they had KD on their team and they had overwhelming talent, they got into trouble in some series where I just feel like they try to be a little bit too clever, and and they they run all these like crazy schemes with with back cutting and, and all this off ball movement. Even against a team like Memphis, it's very good. If you look at all the advanced stats we have on on B-Ball Index and how the Memphis Grizzlies guard those type of off-ball movement actions, that's their strength as a defense. They're very switchable in their own right. So you're running your offense against a defense that's good at stopping that very thing. At the same time, they could try to just attack guys like John Morant, who are weaker defenders. It's not like the Grizzlies have no one to be attacked. But I, I feel like For whatever reason, the Warriors are always slow to come to that realization that they could just pick out a weakness over and over again. And for all we talk about the necessity to have some sort of scheme, playoff basketball often comes down to just beating a guy who's a bad defender over and over again. How many times have we seen LeBron do that or MJ or any of the great wing players? That's how you end up winning championships, right? So obviously the Warriors can win doing what they're doing, but... There's always this, like, balance where they could be a little bit better at doing this. And they wait sometimes too long to get to that point where they realize, okay, we just have this terrible defender Let's just attack him over and over again.
0: Right, right. No, that's really true. And, again, even though we know Steph Curry to be an extremely talented offensive player, not just with his off-ball movement and shooting capabilities, but he's a superb ball handler, you know, if you put him in a situation where he gets in isolation it's not inconceivable to think that he could punish a john Morant in, in a one-on-one situation right whether it be breaking him down with a dribble you know shooting right in front of his face things like that so i feel like yes the warriors need to also move a little bit away from from their offensive schemes but again like the games were already so close so it's really hard to say what what the right decision truly is right all it takes is a couple of you know breaks either way to see what could happen right so Game three is going to be something extremely exciting.
1: Yeah, I I don't think they need to abandon their offense altogether. I just think they just they could pick their spots a little bit more to attack someone like Ja. Just even just make Ja work a little bit, right? Like right now, Ja is a free game on offense. He picks on whoever he wants, and on defense, he basically just hides on someone, and the Warriors don't make him pay. And that's been a problem. Can we talk for a second, Anu, about this Dylan Brooks clothesline of of yeah, Gary Payton? we we have
0: to. And here, he's a Canadian guy. So, you know, in some ways I do feel that that connection to him. We only have so many Canadian players in the NBA. But, I mean, what he did was completely abhorrent. And Dylan Brooks, from what I know, he's not known to be this like super dirty player. So, this is kind of surprising for me at least that he would do something like this. You know, he's considered to be a great teammate. A lot of guys in their locker room really like him. And he's a competitor. He plays really hard, right? But you know, there's a difference between playing hard and playing like playing bush league. You know what I mean? And this was super bush league. It took a guy out, and you could see in the way that Gary Payton reacted with his screaming that it was a truly hard injury, right? So I feel very, very disgusted with this kind of basketball because it it looked very intentional what he was trying to do, and there was no need. To make a play like that, honestly. I mean, yes, they, they always say, you know, don't give two points up for free. But there's a difference between doing that and blatantly going out of your way to injure somebody. And that was just disgusting. And them not having Gary Payton is is a huge, huge thing for, for the Warriors because in some ways, he is that guy you can put on a Ja Morant, you know, to at least trouble him, right? So it's uh it's a huge loss for the Warriors.
1: Yeah, I thought he was really good on John ja in game one. I know Ja got his still. But I thought Peyton was easily their most promising defender on him. And he's probably their best perimeter defender for this kind of player. As much as we think that Wiggins has improved defensively, he's just too slow. And I think Kaminga is just too raw to take on an assignment like this. Especially the way that Joss is feeling right now. I think he's feeling himself after that Wolves series. It's a tough matchup. And Steve Kerr started this guy for a reason. Like, he probably realized this is our guy we need to put on jaw, and he lasted all three minutes before, unfortunately, now he's a fractured elbow and he's going to be out for one month.
0: Yeah, honestly, just really sad. You know, injuries happen in the playoffs, but this was something that could have easily been avoided. And I do think that, you know, the flagrant two was definitely the correct call. I I called it. As soon as I was watching, I'm like, okay, yeah, good job, Dylan Brooks. You missed three shots today, and that was your total contribution to your team. Very good. But again, Dylan—he is a big part of that Grizzlies team. They do need him to play in in these games, and you know it's just a sad situation all around. Anu, what have you seen from Clay
1: Thompson? I don't even just mean this series, but just maybe the whole playoffs, or even this season. Because when I I look at Clay, I see a guy who I I know he hit a big shot before missing some big free throws in Game One, but I just. I just don't know what his value really is at this point. Like, obviously, he's an amazing shooter. You have to always somewhat account for him. He's just not the same defensive player at all. And I, I'm not expecting him to stay in front of John Moran, who basically nobody can stay in front of. But he's not that same player. It, it feels like a weird thing where they have Jordan Poole, who's kind of like a, a clay replacement in some ways, but they also want to play clay with him. So now that makes him even a little bit weaker defensively than maybe they could be. I, I'm not really sure how that gets resolved. Obviously, Kerr has, and the whole Warriors, have a lot of institutional loyalty to Klay to Thompson for everything he's done for that franchise. But I'm not sure that right now the lineups are putting out there with both him and Poole are necessarily the best basketball fit when you have a guy who's attacking switches this hard.
0: Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. With with Clay Thompson, it, it's really difficult to say what the right choice is because, I mean, in game two, he played really badly. Like, he shot, horrendous percentage like five for something like 20 added up something ridiculous it was super bad and you know not having the clay of old is obviously a huge blow to them but there are still things he brings that are of value right like i mean if you put clay in the right matchup defensively he can still be a lockdown guy you know obviously you don't want him to guard super quick players like a john moran he's not the same player defensively as he once was but he's still good enough on that end to hold his own And like you said, you still have to respect him. He's Clay Thompson. He's one of the greatest shooters of all time, right? So just him being in that lineup, you know, he has gravity to him, right? So if you can run a lot of different types of actions where either he can be a player, to you know, flare out for threes or, you know, be that kind of guy to set a screen, like a back screen and just cut to the basket, right? To get easy layups. So there's a lot of ways you can still utilize a Clay Thompson on the floor. But, again, it, it does hurt that he's not the same player that he once was. So, I don't know. I really don't know what the the solution is when it comes to Jordan Poole in particular. Because, like you said, he does seem like he is a, the new Splash Brother amongst them. So, yeah, it's a tough choice to make.
1: Yeah, by the way, when people say that he's a new Splash Brother, like, look at this man's statistics. He's actually one of the greatest shooters in the world. I and mean, it's unbelievable that this organization... In their sort of pseudo down years, after having this multiple year championship, you know, finals run that they, they had, somehow unearths yet another guy who is an all-time caliber shooter. And now, will he actually live up to that? I don't know, but at least statistically so far, he's really that good of a basketball player from a shooting perspective.
0: Yeah, and I mean, to talk a little bit about Jordan Poole, right? Obviously, the defensive stuff still needs to come together. But if you look at him as an offensive weapon, this guy is something else. Like, the shooting is one thing, but have you seen his handle with the ball? He's, like, super shifty. He can, like, get someone on their heels super quickly, get to the basket, finish with either hand with with jelly, you know, like jelly-type finishes. The guy is just, like, insane. It's it's super entertaining to watch a player like him because – in some ways, he does fit into that system, but I could see him playing on any kind of team. You know what I mean? He has that kind of, that kind of offensive package to him, right? So I, I definitely think he's super exciting and a lot of fun to watch. And I'm glad that I've never been a Warriors fan and I never will be, but it's cool to see them develop this kind of young talent and have a guy like this who's super entertaining to watch.
1: I mean, it shows that great organizations stay great because they make these kind of decisions. And bad organizations, like my New York Knicks, they stay bad because we, we, we miss the little things. We miss the opportunities to make these deep draft picks. And by the way, I, I do want to give a shout out to Memphis for their front office and just how many great guys they got late in the first round, in the second round. They're sort of underrated. We, we don't talk about them enough as being a really well-run franchise, but you don't get a team this young, this deep, with this many assets going forward without really knowing, you know, your draft room and your prep and everything that it takes to to be a world-class organization.
0: Shout-out to Memphis, man. Y'all doing the gritty up there? Hopefully you can keep doing the gritty when you beat the Warriors. I want to see Jabra go crazy.
1: So, Ano, give me your prediction then. How does this series finish?
0: I feel like, you know, the basketball logic side of me is going to say Warriors in six, but... The enthusiast in me, the, the Grizzlies guy here with John Moran just being so exciting. I want to say Grizzlies in seven. Like, truly, I I want to say Grizzlies in seven. And I think the series can go that far, too.
1: I mean, I would love to see that. I still think the Warriors did what they had to do. They stole one in Memphis. It's going to go to Golden State. It's one of the best crowds. I know it's not quite Oracle, but it's still going to be Golden State. It's not like going to Minnesota, right? Can a young team... Go up against a team with legitimate champions on that team with experience. I find it hard to imagine they can sustain this. So I, I, I like your Warriors in six prediction that you made before you reversed your prediction to the Grizzlies. Oh, come on. Uh, but I will be rooting <laughs> hard for the Grizzlies for this entire playoffs. I, I have fallen in love with this team. And, and John Moran is just one of the most exciting things that happened in the NBA in some time.
0: Yep. Truly box office. So with that being said, let's go on to our last series. We're going to talk about, which is the Bucks and the Celtics, and this is a really interesting series for for a lot of reasons, due with injuries as as one of the main things, but also with the emergence of you know a guy like Jalen Brown, like really stepping up. But AC overall, let me hear your thoughts real quick.
1: Man, this series is so much going on for it. I, I let's start with Giannis. I I feel like Giannis already to me has proven that he's unequivocally the best basketball player in the world. In game one, he dominated in so many different ways. His shot wasn't really falling, but he was everywhere. You know, he got a triple-double, but it doesn't even account for how many shots he alters. Just like when a guy's driving, they even just see on it, he'll just pass the ball, right? He's everywhere, and he's a, there's a physical part to his game that's reminiscent of, Guys like Shaq. It's demoralizing to face a guy like that. And when you put it in context with how Kevin Durant struggled against his very same team. Kevin Durant, I think we both would agree, is the other guy in the running for that best player title right now. When Kevin Durant isn't scoring, he isn't able to affect the game quite as much as Giannis is. Even though Kevin Durant is a good defender in his own right. There's just a physicality and, and almost an intimidation that comes with Giannis. And I thought even in game two where, again, his team struggled, he didn't have his best game, there were just stretches of time where it just felt like, oh, my God, this guy is the biggest dude on the floor. He's the most athletic guy on the floor. And I, it, it, it's hard to look at a guy like that and be like, anyone else right now is better than him.
0: Yeah, and again, Giannis, even though the defense of the Celtics has been fantastic and they've really honed in on him, He's still a guy who, no matter how you scheme against him, no matter what you really do, he'll find a way to put the ball in in the basket. And even when he's not doing that, like you said, but let's be honest, he's probably still the best defender in the world, or arguably the best defender in the world, right? I mean, the way he's able to alter shots, you know, being super switchable, a guy you can play in any sort of scheme. I mean, he's he's a monster. He's a Greek freak for a reason, right? So I feel like the Celtics have done as good a job as anyone can do against Giannis. But if he finds a way to get it clicking in a way that, you know, we've seen him do before in last year's playoffs, then I think that this year's can shift dramatically. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, what the Celtics are doing, right? Let's talk about the scheme that they employed. And we need to give a huge shout out to Grant Williams because this guy has defended Giannis as good as players can hope to try to do, right? You think about, you know, teams of the past, like the Raptors, for example, my guys, who would wall up against him. They'd put the biggest guys as possible to try to contain Giannis. And while the Celtics are doing that, they are really relying on Grant Williams in one-on-one coverages to do what he can to disrupt Giannis. Now, Grant Williams has done a good job in the sense that he's not being moved by Giannis, right? Giannis has always been good at getting to his spot, being stronger than everyone else, and being able to finish over the top. He can't even get into those situations because Grant Williams is not allowing him to. Now, I feel like Giannis has a lot of ways he can counteract this. You know, he has a couple of inches on him, so he should be able to shoot over the top or find some other way to score. And we know Giannis is capable, but a guy like Grant Williams is really, like, bothering Giannis because he's not able to get to those spots to begin with.
1: Yeah, if you told me coming into this series that Grant Williams would have the biggest impact defensively, I I wouldn't have believed you. I mean, this is a team that employs Robert Williams, or Time Lord, who was in the running for Defensive Player of the Year until he got injured. It employs Al Horford, who historically has had some success against Giannis in, in past series. But the thing that you hit the nail on the head about what makes Grant Williams so effective, he's just so fucking strong. And so Giannis isn't getting to his spot quite as much as he wants to. But beyond that, the Celtics as a whole, I'm just so impressed with what they do defensively night in and night out. I just think they're they're a team that really understands assignments. They're not a team that almost ever overhelps, but it often looks like there are six or seven guys on the floor because they're sort of just in those sort of half spaces between players and just kind of crowding but not overcrowding where there's an easy kickout pass and it just speaks to their their entire team how well coached they're by email doka and honestly just how talented they are as a defensive unit and let's be honest this is without marcus smart the guy who won
0: defensive player of the year really you know playing at all this series yeah i mean it's it's a big credit to the schemes they employ and again like you said, everyone who plays on the Celtics team at any given time is a player that can play on the defensive side of the ball. You know, you can win a lot of games just by getting stops. Stops will inevitably lead to scores on the other end. So right now, I feel like because the Bucks are not able to get into as comfortable a, of a half-court setting as they normally would like to be, and that's also due in part with not having Chris Middleton, which we'll talk about, but, you know, not having... A comfortable offensive scheme to run where Giannis can just sort of get wherever he wants. And that's how their offense operates. Taking that portion away from them has really made the, the Bucks struggle. And I thought in game one, you know, the Celtics didn't really have a game plan going into it. They were just relying solely on, you know, the defensive town that they have. But now that they've sort of constructed some form of, of defensive wall against Giannis, we can see that the, the Bucks offense is slowly starting to crumble a little bit.
1: Yeah, and I fear it's going to become even worse because historically, the thing that always tripped up the Bucks was they would get into these series and then like the ball would be in Giannis's hands and he'd be isoing at the top of the key and he'd be going into this wall and they'd be kicking out to guys who weren't making enough shots. It just looked robotic. It looked basically not the caliber of what we expect from an elite offense when it comes to playoff basketball. And last year, one of the biggest changes that happened, even in the regular season, Was them using Giannis so much more as a real five, like as a pick setter and a roller or even a little bit off the ball or even in the post at times? Without Chris Middleton, a lot of that is gone because Chris Middleton is their primary pick and roll operator, especially down in crunch time. And that pick and roll where Giannis comes and sets that screen and then dives to the hoop and Middleton can just curl and hit that shot is really pretty much unguardable and was the engine behind their run last year. So you take that out, and you also just take away Chris Middleton's threat as an off-ball shooter, and just in general, the impact that he has offensively. And I just wonder if they're going to be able to score enough against a team that, since December, was the number one defense in the NBA, and it wasn't really even close.
0: And also, we didn't even mention Chris Middleton as a defender, too, because he's no slouch on, on that side of the ball either. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of two way players, there's another guy we need to talk about, and that's Jalen Brown. He did not really have a good first game, but his second game in the series was absolutely incredible. I believe he scored 25 points in the first half of the game
1: 27, I think.
0: 27. I mean, shit, even more than I initially thought. So for him to have a performance like that, that's scary because. Something we talked about earlier on the pod was can Jalen Brown elevate his game to be that kind of player for the Celtics, right? Because we know what Jason Tatum is capable of doing, but where else would they find a form of offense, right? Because a lot of those guys, yes, they can put the ball in the basket, but, you know, they're not premier scorers or anything, right? You have Marcus Smart, who's probably, you know, the third option on that team, and even he's a very streaky offensive player, right? So you need another guy who's capable of scoring. And Jalen Brown has been absolutely incredible in this, the whole run for their playoffs, right? He's been really good in the first round. And so far, even though game one did not go entirely as planned for him, he did show up really big in game two. And it caused a lot of issues for, for the Bucks early because, you know, a lot of their game plan was centered around keeping Jason Tatum quiet. But when Jalen Brown's able to contribute at least like 25 points in a game, that enough makes the Celtics a really hard team to beat when you factor in how good they are as a defensive unit. So I think Jalen Brown's been incredible.
1: Yeah, and they're going to need offense from him because if I see this Celtics team falling short, whether it's in this series or beyond, it's just that they have these droughts despite having great scorers like Jason Tatum and even Jalen Brown to a lesser degree. They just have these stretches, and you saw it even in game two where they just their offense just dies and they're just getting bad looks. and. And by the way, they're having a lot of trouble dealing with some of the full-court pressure that Drew Holiday in particular is putting on their guards. I mean, there were times where it, it was almost like watching like a college team that struggled to get the ball over half the court. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's also slowing down the Celtics' offense. But I think in general, they go through some of these stretches. And Milwaukee is a very stout defensive team. I mean, we mentioned Drew. To me, in my opinion, you can say whatever you want. Marcus Smart, Drew Holiday, is the best guard defender in the NBA. What yeah. he does, slinking around screens as if they don't even exist, and just just the way that he's like on a guy's hip the entire time, he can like take a guy out of their entire offense, and that's a very rare talent. So if you have him, you have Giannis, and now you have Lopez back, who clearly they missed when he was in foul trouble in game two. But three of them alone, you're going to have a good baseline defense. So there is a world where I can see Milwaukee, you know, even if they're going to struggle to score without Middleton, that they just hold the Celtics down enough and just rely on sort of a close game, low-scoring affair. But then, you know, you have Giannis and they don't. So that could be like their formula.
0: No, yeah, for sure. And, you know, speaking a bit on on Drew Holiday, this might be a bit uh, off topic, but there's a podcast that uh, Andre Iguodala and Evan Turner, if you remember him, you know, they do together and they brought drew holiday. Cause remember all these guys were on the same Philadelphia 76ers team at one point. And during the time when they drafted Evan Turner, you know, he was supposed to be the guy for them. Right. So on the podcast, I found it really interesting because Evan was talking about how, you know, in practice he would like kill a bunch of people. And then as soon as drew was there, you know, he would immediately get shut down by him because drew holiday really is that good of a defender. You know even from his young days to now right and he's only grown even better because of understanding you know being in the league for as long as he's been learning all the tricks uh, of the trade in the NBA right so I mean having a guy like Drew Holiday is invaluable and I agree with you in the sense that while Marcus Smart you know well deserved on the defensive player of the year award but Drew Holiday truly is a premier two-way point guard in the NBA.
1: Anu anyway, I wanted to get your thoughts on somewhat of a bizarre lineup that Milwaukee went to in game one where they used three bigs at once. And you rarely see that in modern basketball. They had Lopez, Bobby Portis and Giannis all out there at the same time. And it actually worked in game one and, and they didn't quite get to run it in game two because Lopez got in foul trouble, not with any kind of legitimate sample size in my like estimation. This is not a line that should work. I get that Portis is such a good shooter right now that offensively it could work, even though you would think that it have spacing issues. But I, I just wonder if those guys can chase around some of the wings of, of the Celtics, especially when the Celtics go a little bit smaller. I, I guess they can kill them on the backboard, but it, it's a it's a rare time where a, a team opted to go big in an era where basically the, the first adjustment any team makes, including Milwaukee, in the middle of their championship run last year, was always to go small, right? Like, I mean, Milwaukee did that multiple times, putting Giannis at the five. Now they're basically putting Giannis at the three or, or Portis at the three, however you want to look at it. What do you make of that lineup?
0: So it's interesting that you say that. I feel like this lineup itself was employed specifically to deal with the tandem of Al Horford and Robert Williams being on the floor at the same time. So when you have all those guys there, I think the matchups in that sense sort of work. I agree that it might be kind of like goofy for them to play this scheme on the defensive side of the ball when the Celtics decide to go small. But then again, we're talking about Budenholzer here. This guy for years has been a- such a head-scratcher of a coach, so like I can't <laughs> ever tell what he's doing half the time. But you know, I I feel like in some cases, at least offensively, to some degree it does make sense because Brook Lopez is a, you know, a good shooter. Bobby Portis, a good shooter. And at least it gives Giannis, some sort of flexibility to work at least on offense because he has enough spacing to be able to do anything. Again, it also does take, I guess, in a way, it takes away Robert Williams and Al Horford from the paint. In theory, it should, uh, but they still will just wall up anyway and force those guys to make shots. So I don't know. I I feel like I could see the logic in it somewhat. And And like you said, it did work in game one, right? So maybe it's just the Brooke Lopez having foul trouble that really wouldn't let them execute it. But, I mean, we have to see, right, if he's going to keep employing this, especially when they decide to go small.
1: Speaking of Bud, Anu, and you know we mentioned briefly my particular concern that without Middleton, they're not going to, be able to run some of the same stuff on offense. But I have felt that, especially in Game 2, but even in Game 1, their offense has been pretty bland, and it, it does feel like a throwback to Bud series of old. I thought in Game 1... The Bucs pretty much won because Giannis was outstanding and, and you know played like he's one of the fifteen greatest players ever, which which he, which he is, frankly, at this point. But you can't rely on that to win playoff basketball games. I'd like to see something a little bit more creative offensively. We know that they have the ability to do that. And, and even without Middleton, like they could run some over with Drew and Giannis. Something like it just felt like it reminded me so much of those old series where Giannis is just looking around. And in game one, it worked. But game two, he was it was just a little bit slower in his decisions. He had a bunch of turnovers. And he was getting the ball in the wrong places. He even took some dumb threes. And even still, he was dominant, which just shows his greatness. But I'm a little bit worried that there's a little bit of, like, bud concern coming back for me right now. I mean, I, I I I fully believe that he deserves a credit for winning last year. But I can't quite shake some of those failures of the past.
0: I mean, A.C. This is the same guy who, for whatever inexplicable reason, decided to not play Giannis like over like thirty-five minutes or whatever. It is. <laughs> like, so we can we honestly cannot be too sure with this individual because he really is a, a head scratcher of a coach. And and I agree, like we need to see the Giannis, the screen setting Giannis, right? Because let's be honest, that's the role that he's best at when he's able to set screens and have. Obviously, yes, you need a guard that can. That can shoot the ball and, and be an offensive threat himself. And Drew Holiday can somewhat be that, but you need to see more contributions from everyone else too, like the Grayson Allens of the world, you know, the Pat Connaughton's of the world. Like they need to be at least chipping in anywhere between like twelve to fifteen, possibly if they can. It really gives the Bucks an, an advantage, and I think Bud needs to find a way to get these guys more involved in their offense. As well, not just Giannis, but you know everyone else as well.
1: So, if you had to pick this one, Anu, how do you see it playing out?
0: This is another one that's like kind of difficult because I really do feel like this Celtics team is like the best it's probably been ever within the past couple years. So, ah man, I I'm gonna say Celtics and seven. Honestly, this is what I'm gonna go with.
1: I have the exact same prediction and a couple of thoughts on that prediction. First and foremost, if it comes to a game seven, I bet you the Bucs are going to regret basically intentionally losing games and throwing games to avoid the Nets and giving the Celtics the two Mm -hmm. seed. They gifted that two seed. In a game seven, you have to go to TD Garden. I would not be happy if I was the Bucs. My second thought is, it's odd to pick against the best player in a series, especially one who just proved last year that he is capable of leading a team to a championship. Right it's just that I, I just don't see how they're going to get enough offense. Like even as we we're you were talking about, you know, someone else running pick and rolls and maybe it'd be drew. And then I was thinking, well, who else can do it? And I look, I'm looking at the roster and there's not a single other guy. I trust to run a pick and roll besides drew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, in the absence of Middleton, so I, I just don't know if they can score enough against his Boston team. And, and the third thing is this Celtics team has frankly just been the best team for a long time now. Like, Ever since December, they've been, uh, by every measure, the best team in the NBA. Point differential, defensively, over the last month, they were even the best offensive team randomly, although I don't quite buy that as much. But the point is, they're really good, they're deep, they're talented, they're ascending, they're together, they're experienced, and they have a ton of chemistry playing together for so many years. So I I just feel like this is their year. I I really believe they're, they're the best team probably in the playoffs left
0: damn is that a hot take or is that a is that a ac take like regular take
1: (laughs) i I think that's a a belated hot take i i I missed asking us we our editor to throw in the hot take alert but if you want to throw me a bone and throw it in now (laughs) it'll be nice too
0: (laughs) hot take alert and with that i think that's a great place to stop i mean playoff basketball is incredible it's like another christmas for us basketball fans but it's an extended christmas we love it you know if you like what you heard today don't forget to like comment subscribe rate you know tell us how we did email us you can find us at brownmenwon'tjump at gmail.com and on instagram at brown jump thank you guys so much for listening and please do take care and pray for us sweetie he's going yeah. through some hard
1: times right now with everyone
0: success. send your thoughts and prayers for us because he's actually, going through it
1: actually pray for for glenn rivers because <laughs> philadelphia has a hit out for that guy right now all right everyone
0: take care